Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning on this Lord's Day, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Um, I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving and got to spend it with family. Um, as, as Steve mentioned, the, the year is flying by, and uh, we're now on a countdown to Christmas. In fact, next Sunday will be the first Sunday of Advent on our church calendar, and our church should be decorated for Christmas by next Sunday. The orchestra will be playing the next four Sundays during our morning services. So I, if you're like me, I just love this time of year. So I'm thankful for that. Today we're going to continue our study in the book of Titus. And this is the second sermon in this series. My first sermon on Titus was just last month. So on my timeline, we're speeding through this book. I mean, we're going like warp factor eight for all you Trekkies out there. If that's a thing anymore, I don't even know. But Titus is a letter from Paul to Titus, Paul's true child in a common faith. Last time we talked through verses one through four of chapter one, and I outlined the goal of Paul's ministry as stated in those verses, and if you remember, it was this. The faith and, godly, the faith and godliness of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's Paul's ministry goal. It's a goal with the sanctification of God's elect in mind. Uh, Paul preaches the gospel to everyone but he's confident that those whom God has chosen, God's elect that he mentions, will respond with faith. And God uses preaching as a means of bringing spiritual life in us, the hope of eternal life with Jesus. Churches need to set the context of forever in their hearts and minds. WCC, we need to set the context of forever in our hearts and minds. What we do now, what we do today in this place, reaches forward into the eternal future. And Paul doesn't simply want Christians who believe the right things. His ultimate goal was people whose faith bore fruit in godly living. His goal was not converts, but disciples. So that was a quick recap of verses 1 through 4 that we did last time. Today we're moving on and we'll look at verses 5 through 9 of the first chapter of Titus. So please follow along from your Bible, if you have it open, or from the screen as I read these verses for today. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. As I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, 
the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. Let's, let's pray before we go any further. Father, again, I thank you for this Lord's day and for this time of worship here through this local body of believers here at Walton Community Church. I'm thankful for my church, Father, as we strive to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, you are an awesome God. Forgive us when we lose sight of just how big a God you truly are. You are eternal, glorious, good, holy, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, and wise. And we can still name many other of your attributes, Father. We thank you for giving us Jesus and the gift of salvation through him by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the book of Titus and for the many teachings it provides on living godly lives for your honor and glory. Thank you that your word is true and never fails and that you determined before the foundation of the world to redeem mankind from their sin by grace through faith in Christ. Meet us here in this place now. Give me the words to proclaim your word rightly. Use this time for your glory today. And we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, there are plenty of books that you can order that, that talk about church life or church planting. You can read a lot of books about how to order or structure a church uh, you can read uh, how to organize or structure small groups. What's the best curriculum for church Sunday school? How to run a strong church youth group. And there are books that pretty much cover any topic about the organization of the church that you can think of. So given that the reason Paul left Titus in Crete was, as he says, that he might put what remained into order. In other words, organize the church. We might expect some answers to these kinds of church topics that I just mentioned in this book. But, I mean, that would probably be a huge help to Titus, right? But none of those topics are addressed here in Paul's letter to Titus. But still, here is Paul giving Titus instructions in how to bring order to the church. Although there's nothing on structure, processes, or meetings to serve as a guide. 
Now, it isn't that those things aren't important. We need structure in the church and processes and meetings, but you can't take a model that's geared for one particular church at one particular time in history and make it a blueprint blueprint for every church situation everywhere in the world. You have to work things out specifically for where you are. But what is central and universal to the church worldwide is discipling people with the gospel. And that's what we will see Paul focusing on. Paul, it seems, leaves structures and processes and meetings for Titus just to work out for himself. What Paul does emphasize throughout this entire letter is the importance of gospel-centered discipleship. The emphasis is on bringing order to the church by discipling people through the word of God. So let's begin our verse-by-verse study here now of these verses today, and let's look at verse 5 together. Verse 5 again says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The immediate attention of putting the church in Crete in order is the appointment of of leaders, the elders. I may mention here that uh, the word elders or leaders or overseers today, but all of those terms are talking about the same church office of elder. And I also want to point out that the word elder here in verse 5 is plural and not singular. It says elders. We understand from Scripture that each church is to function with a plurality of elders. Paul had preached the gospel, founded the church in Crete, and he had begun to disciple the new believers, but he'd left before he had been able to appoint elders. And we can maybe guess at the reason for this when we read what Paul says in 1 Timothy where Paul warns about the danger of appointing people to church leadership too soon. Listen to this. An elder must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. That's from 1 Timothy 3.6. And so it's a warning here to all churches not to be too fast in ordaining any church leaders. We need to take time to see people's character. Time reveals truths that may not immediately be obvious. That is why our process of choosing leaders, our elders and our deacons here at WCC takes time. We prayerfully consider each of the steps to be taken in the ordination process. You know, and I really can't go any further in the sermon today without taking the time just to mention the God-honoring privilege it is to serve with the leadership team here at WCC. Jeff and Daniel and George and Steve, Jonathan, Marcus, 
Harlan and Chris. I mean, I'm so thankful for you all. Especially with this being Thanksgiving week, I want to say that. I'm so glad God has chosen that his church should be led with a team. Now, we recognize there is a difference of responsibilities between elders and deacons, but our WCC leadership team, we are in this shoulder to shoulder together in serving and in leading this church, and and just amen to that. Again, I want to just thank the leadership team. So Paul leaves Titus here in verse 5 to continue discipling the believers with the task of appointing elders. This pattern reflects Paul's own activity in his first missionary journey. He and Barnabas preached the gospel in the cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Then sometime later, they returned to those cities and appointed elders for each church, taking the time to appoint leaders. Paul's missionary strategy for this pagan culture on the island of Crete will be to preach the gospel first, then organize the Christians into local churches, each with their own elders. His strategy is church planting. And as I mentioned last time, Paul planted over 20 churches. He wants to scatter gospel churches throughout the Mediterranean world, and he wants to see elder-led congregations in every town. That was one of the reasons that we planted Walton Community Church here in Monroe. We wanted to see an elder-led, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, reformation-minded church in this area of Georgia. Because when we planted WCC back in 2018, there were few to none in this area. We wanted to help ensure that in 10, 20, 30 years down the road that we would be one of the strong gospel communities witnessing to Christ in this area. So putting a church in order involves appointing elders. But Paul's main concern will be the character of the leadership team more so than the structure of the church. He wants leaders who have proven themselves as disciples, and he wants them to spend their time making more disciples. So what do churches normally look for in elders? Is it skills, good preaching, a dynamic personality, a pastoral touch, good strategy, administrative abilities, a person with extra white teeth that sparkle when they smile. I mean, the list could keep going. But Paul is much more interested in the type of person they are. He is interested in their character. These verses today are addressed mainly to elders. But if you're a leader of any kind here in this church at WCC, if you're an elder, a deacon, 
a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader, whatever ministry you may lead here in this local church body, verses 7 through 9 especially give some insight into the kind of leader you should be. If you are not currently a leader, then this is the kind of leader you should expect. And author Tim Chester points out, if you have them, enjoy them, end quote. Very short quote there from him. We pray that our WCC leaders will be people like this. All right, so let's move on now to verse 6 and dig in a little deeper to what Paul has to say about church elders. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. There there are going to be three main points that I want to make this morning concerning these five verses, verses 5 through 9 today. Here's the first point. We should expect church leaders to be blameless or, in other words, above reproach in their home. We should expect church leaders to be above reproach in their home. An elder must be above reproach with their family. And that's what verses 6 and 7 will be about. John Calvin said this, There are ordinary vices that are found in all men, even in those of the highest character. So to be above reproach does not mean sinless perfection, but rather a life of honor and integrity. An elder should be faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Above reproach doesn't mean entirely without fault. No elder can live up to that because no elder is perfect. And leaders as well as congregations shouldn't demand that. In fact, leaders need to acknowledge that they aren't perfect. I'm I'm admitting that today. I am not perfect, okay? All church leaders are still sinners saved by grace. However, above reproach does mean to have a good reputation against which an accusation can't be made. When it says the husband of one wife, I believe simply means a one-woman man. In other words, this does not exclude single men or it doesn't necessarily exclude men who have remarried. Rather, we are to look for men with a strong marriage who are committed to their wife and who care and cherish their wife. The same kind of clarification should be made to the next phrase, his children are believers. The word children here, it it just implies small children. Most children in their early years believe what their parents believe. So the beliefs of young children will reflect their home life. And Paul wants to appoint elders whose children's belief reflect a home life of Christian faith. As they grow up, 
they may start to question those beliefs and possibly even drift away. But in their early years, they should reflect the faith of their parents because their parents are intentionally teaching and modeling faith to them and exerting loving discipline rather than allowing their children to be open to the charge of, well, as Paul puts it, debauchery and insubordination, or, if, or we can say being wild and disobedient. The key issue here is that potential elders must already be leading well in their home. Why? Well, let's look at verse 7 now for the answer. Verse 7 says this, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. An overseer or, or an elder manages God's household. So the way a man leads his own family will tell you a lot about how he will lead God's family, the church. If he is already domineering in his home, well, he's likely to be domineering in the church. If he's quick-tempered in his home, he will likely be quick-tempered in the church. If he fails to take responsibility in his home, he's likely to shirk responsibility in the church. Paul is saying to Titus the most important reference for a church leader is what goes on in his home life. In today's culture, the biblical idea of family is under attack. And that seems so absurd to even say that. But one of the results of those attacks is that we seem to have a whole generation of men especially who are encouraged to live as perpetual children, to avoid responsibility rather than bearing it, to follow instead of lead our homes, to want the benefits of married life while retaining the benefits of singleness. So we men need to tell ourselves to grow up and encourage each other to grow up. Our families and our churches need us to lead our families. To take initiative in the church and to serve in the church and our neighbors. Our families and our churches need us to be striving to live like Christ. A man's key ministry is in their home. And that's where the training for church ministry takes place. If you're a church leader, and I'm preaching to myself here, are you ensuring your home ministry is godly and committed? If you are aspiring to be a church leader at some point in the future, does your home life suggest you are suited for it? All right, the second point that I want to make about these verses is that we should look for church leaders and those aiming to be church leaders who are blameless or above reproach in their character. Our first point, 
was that an elder should be above reproach with their family. And now Paul repeats the words above reproach here again in verse 7 as I read it, and just like he did in verse 6. But now, here in verse 7, the focus on being above reproach or blameless is mostly on all-around character. Paul lists five negative characteristics in this verse to avoid in a potential leader. Number one, these are things to avoid. Not to be arrogant. Not to be quick-tempered. Not to be given to drunkenness. Not to be violent. Not pursuing dishonest gain. Tim Chester again writes really well about there being two common dangers in pastoral ministry that involve a person's character. And Paul seems to be alert to both of them. Uh, They are what we call over-pastoring and under-pastoring. And Chester's points are these. Over-pastoring is what happens when leaders exercise too much control in the life of a church. They are quick to suppress any dissent and may even end up bullying people. They often personalize issues. Any suggestions for change or any constructive criticism given are responded to in a personal way with counter accusations. It seems the aim of such leaders is personal control rather than taking the maturity of the congregation into account. This is why Paul says here in verse 7 that an elder must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Then there's under-pastoring. And that, what happens here is when leaders exercise too little leadership within a congregation. They avoid confrontation at all costs. So they fail to correct false teaching or challenge ungodly living. They may be good at encouraging, but weak at rebuking those in error. And we'll look at uh, that more in depth coming up in verse 9. But church, please continue to pray for a good balance of pastoring for your elders here at WCC. We need your prayers. Moving on to verse 8. Verse 8 says, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Here in verse 8, Paul lists six positive virtues to look for. We need to look for someone that's being hospitable, one who loves what is good, someone who is self-controlled, someone who is upright, someone who is holy, and someone who is disciplined. Remember, Paul's primary concern is not finding the people with the best skills. His primary concern is with character. And we can see a couple of reasons for this. First, skills used for selfish ends become destructive. You know, we see this enough in history. The tyrants of the world didn't get to where they are by accident. They are able, talented, and skillful people, usually with a a very charismatic personality. 
But the problems are not in their capabilities or skills, but in their characters. Their aims are selfish, and they bring misery to those they lead. Maybe such cases occur more in politics today rather than in the church, but it isn't unusual for a gifted person with a bad character to rise quickly in the church, only then to crash, and their church crashes with them. John Calvin wrote this all the way back in the 1500s, nearly 500 years ago. Listen to what he says. The more eminent a man is, therefore, he ought to be more careful to be on his guard, for his elevation makes it impossible for him to fall from it without doing greater harm, end quote. Christian leaders who fall can lead many to question their faith. It can be very sad. So again, this is just another example why we need to pray for the leadership team here at WCC. Another reason Paul's primary concern for leaders is characters is because failure to teach truth often starts with failure to live morally. A potential elder must be someone who isn't known for pursuing dishonest gain. Faulty desires will probably lead to faulty teaching. And faulty teaching can be attractive if your desires are even slightly wrong. Because let's be honest, novelty and controversy in a church Well, that sells in today's world. And I'm sure you're aware of churches that are like that. But look at the opposite of that type of church. When a church and its leaders are more conservative and more traditional, just humbly holding to the truth of God's word and seeking to honor God in everything that they do. Now that really isn't a great way to make a name for yourself or to draw a big crowd or to even sell books, but in my, in my opinion and what I think scripture teaches, it's the better way. Point one was an elder should be above reproach with their family. Point two was an elder should be above reproach with their character. Now the third and final point, we should look for leaders to be blameless or above reproach in their doctrine. And that takes us to verse 9, and this will be our final verse today. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders must have the ability to encourage and refute. This is the key to which elders manage God's family. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word as it has been taught. That way we can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. An elder has two tasks, as this verse says, both of which require him to hold unswervingly to that message. He is to, number one, encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And there's no doubt, 
as to what WCC believes and what we teach here as a church. It can be found in our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. It's there for everyone to read on their own. It's on our church website. That's one of the marks of a Reformed church, to have a confession of faith. We are a confessional church. Our confession of faith grounds us in what we believe to be a true summation of the truths of God's word, the Bible. Now, we acknowledge our confession is not scripture, but we believe it to be a good and accurate summary of the trustworthy word as taught. Based on other scripture verses, we also see that elders are also held accountable for prayer, for oversight of the church, and for teaching within the church. And these expectations, there's something that we go over in our new members class when we talk about eldership. But Paul is specifically stressing here in verse 9 that elders are to encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Here's a quote from John Calvin on this verse. John Calvin says this, a church leader ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves, end quote. Elders need a voice that encourages and a voice that refutes. And Paul wants Titus not only to appoint leaders, but also to model leadership to those leaders. Paul's words in verse 9, they seem simple, but they're not easy. Leaders must encourage and rebuke their church with the gospel. They must not underplay it, nor say more than it says. Their people need them to preach, teach, and celebrate the gospel, plain and simple. Their people need them to love and to live and to grow in the gospel themselves. They are to be disciples shaped by the gospel, and they are to make disciples shaped by the gospel. And the gospel is that God has made us to know him and to reflect his image and character, but we have sinned against him. We have stored up against ourselves God's rightful wrath for our sins, wrath that would justly take us down to hell and total separation from God forever were it not for the amazing love of God that has come to us in Jesus Christ. That's Christmas, isn't it? When God has come to us in Jesus Christ. Christmas is God, the Son, taking on flesh, that he became truly human. He lived a perfect life and was crucified, bearing God's wrath for our sins, the sins of all who repent and trust in him. God raised Christ to life in victory over sin and death. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, then we will be saved from the punishment due to us for our sins, from the, our self-enslavement to sin, and one day even from the very presence of sin itself. 
and we'll come to spend eternity with God. The gospel is truly good news, church. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. The gospel makes Christ present and real in our lives. And as I said in my last sermon, eternity enters history when we make Jesus present to others. One day, God will make all things new. The good news of what Jesus did on the cross culminates in a new heaven and a new earth where we enjoy the presence of God forever. That's how much God loves us, that he gave us his only son through his death on the cross so that we can be saved. May this be the day of salvation for someone here today. If God has been speaking to you recently, or he may be speaking to you today, then you need to talk with someone after the service. Please see me or any of our elders or deacons before you leave. Your future could be sealed for all eternity, and the right time could be now. To end the sermon today, let's just summarize these five verses that we studied again by simply saying the church leaders should be blameless. They should be above reproach in their homes, in their character, and in their doctrine. And church leaders should be disciples who can make disciples. We pray for our leadership here at WCC, for God to keep them blameless in their homes, in their character, and in their doctrine. And may God help us to do that for our good and for his glory. Amen? All right, let's pray.